0: Welcome to The New Deal. I'm your host, Jerry Nutini, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you are further interested in my rantings and ravings, please don't forget to check out The New Deal blog at thenewdeal.com. All episodes of this podcast are also available at newdeal.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Podbean mobile app for iOS and Android. I'm excited about today's episode. I've uh, got a lot we want to uh, try to cover here, um, including some protests I attended last weekend. I'm in my home state of Rhode Island. Just kind of my thoughts and perspectives on those, how those went, uh, what I took from them. I uh, also like to talk about a little bit about Philandis Floyd, uh, George Floyd's brother, as he testified at the House in front of the House Judiciary Committee uh, the day after his brother's funeral. Uh, there's also new legislation on the table, the Justice in Policing Act of 2020, uh, that the House put forth uh, over this last week. Um, and there's a New Deal article on that, so um, I'd like you. Uh, I'd like to share that, what I found on, on, on what's coming up in the Justice in Policing Act of 2020, uh, should it pass. Um, i also like to talk about systemic racism and some historical events that demonstrate what the black community has been up against, uh, not just recently, but for decades, centuries here in this country. Um, and then just a little bit on the Confederate flag, um, Confederate monuments. And we, we've seen some you know, movement on those over the last couple of uh, weeks here. Uh, whether it's monuments being torn down or organizations coming out and, and banning the use of the Confederate flag and, and just a little bit of history there. So um, let's get right into it. So um, last week, last weekend, I attended some protests um, in Bristol, Rhode Island, my hometown. Uh, very proud to have grown up there. Um, oldest Fourth of July parade in the country. We're very prideful of that. A um, lot of patriotism there. Um but it was really great to see in a small town like that a thousand people come out um for a um for a protest uh to, to support the Black Lives Matter uh movement. And it was it was a short walk, maybe may, maybe a mile from um uh state park called Colt State Park down to Independence Park. Um and we knelt there for eight minutes and forty-six seconds, and I'll I'll get to that in a second. And um later in the day I attended a, another protest, um the official Black Lives Matter Rhode Island protest in Newport, Rhode Island, and there were thousands of people there. Uh, we went from the Martin Luther King Community Center. Uh, it wasn't advertised as a march, but we ended up walking over to the police station, um, stayed there for a couple of minutes, then moved over to the uh, the county courthouse, and then back to the community center where there were a couple of speakers um, that, that were very impressive, one in particular, and, and I'd like to share uh, s- some of his words um, in the podcast as well. So, uh, but, but the Bristol March. So uh, the Bristol March was, was interesting um, the, the day before, the Friday. Um, so today is Sunday the 14th. So on Friday the 12th so, – sorry. On Friday the 5th, uh, there was a large protest in the state capital, Providence. And, and they think it may have been the largest protest um, at least in recent history. Over 10,000 people uh, were at that protest in downtown Providence. Uh, we're a state of a million Uh, So that's a substantial turnout uh, for for that uh, protest, Um, and again one of the largest in state history. So so this was the day after, and you know I I had been talking with uh, you know my my fiance and we thought well you know we didn't really know what to expect in Bristol you know especially in comparison to the day before, Um, but we were pleasantly surprised to see again you know probably close to a thousand people turn out for that Bristol protest. Um, It was led by I believe a high school. Um, senior. Um, She did extremely well um, in organizing it and organizing the walk. We marched down one of the main roads down to Independence Park. And, And once we got there, we knelt for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And that is the amount of time that police officer Derek Chauvin was on George Floyd's neck. That is a long time. Eight minutes and 46 seconds is a very long time. You you get sore just from kneeling a little bit. It's in, in your you know in you're sitting there in silence. You know you don't have your you don't have your phone out or any of those distractions, and you can really experience the amount of time eight minutes and forty six seconds is, and it really put in perspective for me the how helpless George Floyd must have felt. Being on the ground with someone on top of him, um, enduring that pain, enduring the suffocation, um, for, for that long—it's—it's it's unbelievable that some that a human being can inflict that kind of torture upon another human being, and and that's exactly what it is. It's—it's it's torture, you know. It's George Floyd begged for for his mother, you know. He asked the police officers to stop. He called him sir repeatedly and and so it is it is beyond me how another human being can treat another human being like that not for 30 seconds never mind eight minutes and 46 seconds and I think I mentioned on last week's podcast that you know Derek Chauvin stayed on his neck for like over a minute after the ambulance arrived and over two minutes and 30 seconds I believe like over two minutes and 30 seconds after he had passed out it's it's depraved behavior really but but it, but when you're there kneeling, when you're there, you know, showing that, that respect, that tribute to, to, to Mr. Floyd, it's, it really sinks in. And, you know, if you haven't been able to get to a protest, if this is something you care about, you haven't had the time, and, and you're just looking for a small way to pay tribute or a small way to to understand, um, put, put a stopwatch on your phone for eight minutes and 46 seconds and sit in silence in your house, you know, and, and just feel it uh, because it's – it's uh, it really puts it in perspective it's it's sad um, it's sad that there are human beings capable of inflicting that type of pain and that type of torture upon another human being um, and it's it's devastating that someone had to spend their final, final moments uh, like that so that was um, it was effective it was an effective strategy for for a protest uh, for, 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 for really, sending home the message. And, and it definitely worked. Um, it, it worked for me. And, and, and from what I can understand, from what, what I've seen online, most people who have done something similar to that have knelt for eight minutes and 46 seconds, have a very similar experience. So it was sobering. Uh, e- even when you think you understand the weight of the moment, you, you you don't really understand what happened. You don't really understand what that experience might have been like. Uh, and and you know, obviously, I'm not saying it's similar, but it, it gives you that very small window into what George Floyd uh, experienced as far as the time lapse and and that's uh again, sobering. but i was I was very proud to see a thousand people out there, and uh, they were vocal. Uh, it was extremely it was all peaceful. There was actually a large police presence uh, for a town of this size. There were maybe twenty, thirty officers, I would imagine um, in in and around the the park where, where it ended. Um, again, all respectful. A no confrontation. They actually stood off in the distance, which I thought was a, a nice gesture. Um, but, but it was it was a it was a, a, a good experience and it, and it did its job. It, it sent the message. it was organized, it was powerful. there was a sense of community and a sense of understanding and, and that was really great. So um, so after that we came home, um, kind of hung around for a little bit, tried, tried to recharge. We knew that the rally in Newport, Rhode Island would be larger and it was. So we got there. I was, uh, I believe, a three o'clock p.m. start, and there were thousands of people there. Um, it seemed to grow as we went. So we marched around the the block from from the Martin Luther King Community Center uh, over to the police station. And I'm going to be honest; I didn't know that we were marching to the police station. So the crowd was definitely more energetic than than the the morning march. And I think people in large numbers will do that generally. Um, But being out in front of the police station uh, with protesters on the bullhorn, because it seemed like it wasn't planned, I was like, oh, man, like this could potentially deteriorate. Um, But uh, the police presence was there and it was a strong police presence there. But they did, again, a great job just kind of keeping their distance, letting things play out. Um, Some people spoke out in front of the police station. They finished up and we moved down the street to the courthouse at the courthouse. It was a really it was a powerful moment for me to see all the people. So the courthouse kind of is is fenced in by maybe a four-foot-high kind of black iron fence. So we had actually gotten inside the fence because the protesters were up on the steps, and it, it's a little bit of a hill. And when I turned around, you could still see all the protesters coming down the street, and they could not fit into the area that we were in or in the area outside. The protesters, like the the march had to stop. There wasn't enough room for everybody to get close and really – you know, hear what was going on. And it was that moment. It's like there, there are a ton of people here. A ton. We, we're, we're, we're marching down the street. There's people yelling out of their windows and support. People are honking their horns in their cars. There are people like kind of stationary um, up on steps and things like that, just kind of protesting along. And it was a real, it was one of those moments where you really feel like you're part of something. And that's so. So much of that is what's important about these protests is knowing that you are not alone in the way that you're thinking about what progress looks like in this country and what justice looks like in this country. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands, if not millions of people in this country who are looking for the same type of progress, the same humanity, the same civility in, in, in our America. And and so it was really, you know, you leave those those events and this was a little longer and you leave tired and you leave – your soul feels good. It, it feels – you feel reinvigorated a little bit on that level because you know that you're you're participating in something that feels gen, genuinely good and right. And, and it's so – especially now, especially in the age of Trump, to feel to, – to be surrounded by like-minded people who just want to see more good in this world is really um, – inspiring and and it really does you know you know summon that feeling of hope um so so that was really um it, it was it was powerful um so so after we left the courthouse we, we marched back to the martin Luther king community center and i'm not from newport you know i don't spend a lot of time in newport but um this community center has been a, a major part of the the black community there for decades um or maybe over 100 years if i remember correctly from what they were saying so, they had a lot of people speaking. Um, the mayor came out and spoke. There were community organizers there. But there was one speech in particular that was, you know, they just asked him to, to put it together, just to kind of talk about what we're looking at and um, what this injustice is. And one part of the speech that this gentleman gave was, I mean, it, it was emotional for me to listen to as a white American thinking like, oh man, like, you you know, I'm just going to play the clip for you. So uh, his name is uh, Theo Joseph. um, And he was speaking at this rally. um, And, uh, you know, thankfully there's a, There's an independent news organization here in Rhode Island called Uprise Rhode Island and they cover a lot of these events and they post their news for free and and they had covered this and there was a YouTube video online. So um, I was actually able to get the audio for for some of the speech. So again, this is uh, a clip of Theo Joseph speaking at this Newport, Rhode Island rally last weekend. Um, It's a little bit long, a couple of minutes, um, but I implore you to listen, um, just hear his words and uh, then we can reflect on it.
1: To all my people out there, who are more vocal about the riots than about the real injustice. I say to you, after all this time with little to no progression, I say to you, do we not have the right to be this angry? Is is this not the same America who responded to the first black president by calling him a terrorist, by hanging him in effigy, by saying he was not born here? by electing the most openly racist president possible, possibly in the history of this country. Let that sink in that Donald Trump is in the same boat as the presidents who owned slaves. Is this not still the country that brought over slaves in the early 1600s? Is this not still a country that murdered Native Americans and stole their land? Yes! Is this not still the country that hosts, Nat, that, that hosts the Nat Turner's revolt, yes! as well as an entire civil war, yes! just so a black man can no longer be considered property? Thank you. Is this not still a country that killed millions of people because of the color of their skin? Is this not still a country that lynched and burned our people and our properties? Is this not still a country that murdered Emmett Till, an innocent child? Is this not still a country that fought an entire war overseas to free Jewish people from Hitler? While at the same time not allowing people of color to eat with them, to talk to them, to work with them, to go to school with them, to drink from the same fountain as them, or even? or even to sit next to them? Is this not still the same country that burned down Black Wall Street? Is this not still the same country that implemented redlining? Is this not still the same country that forced drugs into our community as well as violence, Then immediately waged war on us because of the drugs and violence? Is this not still the same country who assassinated the president that abolished slavery? Yeah. Is this not still the same co- country who assassinated the president that was about to abolish segregation? Yeah. Is this not still the same country that assassinated one of the most prominent freedom fighters in black history, yeah. Dr. Martin Luther King? Yeah. Is this not still the same country that is doing the same old shit, just a different day?
0: Same old shit, just a different day. Um, what what resounded with me with that? I mean, b- beside the crowd response, there's something about being in a crowd that is getting hyped up when someone else is speaking. But but there is there's this numbness that happens, um, and and it's happening now. It's been happening over the last several years. You know, at, at least for for me, in that like. Donald Trump has committed atrocities. You know, Donald Trump committed atrocities as a president, uh, you know, but before he was president, that like no other president or, or candidate could ever have gotten away with and getting elected. Not only did he get elected, but we've had three years of the same issue after issue after issue, whether it's, you know, Calling up, you know, African countries shithole countries, or whether it's putting kids in cages, or whether it's saying ridiculous things on Twitter, or saying that Nazis are, you know, fine people. And, and and then I draw a blank because you begin to forget all the things that you got upset about, all the terrible things that did happen. You know that you've been upset about hundreds of things that Donald Trump did. But what, what, what Theo Joseph was saying here is. You know, I think we forget our history a little bit. He didn't even begin to touch on the, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg, the things he mentioned, the assassination of a president, you know, about to uh, free the country of segregation, assassinating a president that emancipated the slaves. Did America do that? Did the government do that? No. But those types of mindsets are cultivated in America. The mindsets that, you know, the mindsets that are empowered to kill Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy, you know, those minds are cultivated in America because, and they're based on a cultural hatred or or disdain or or an inferiority that white people are better than black people, and, and, and this country has nurtured those minds, whether we want to admit it or not. I'm willing to admit it. A lot of people don't seem to be, and this will tie in a little bit to the Confederate issue that we'll get into later in the show, but you forget the history. So he hits on he he's hitting on all these points and I'm sitting there listening and thinking like, oh, I forgot about that. Oh, oh, that's right. Okay, yep, that happened too. Oh, yeah. You know, that's right. You know, someone did assassinate the president, but we didn't we don't tie that in because it wasn't it's not like it's not like the KKK did it. It was like, oh, you know, this guy, you know, John Wilkes Booth, you know, he killed Lincoln and, you know, Kennedy was assassinated by Lee Harvey Oswald and you know, and, and you don't think about it in terms of race, but when you think about what those men represented and, and that th- that they were assassinated, it, it begins to tie together that when you're a black person and John F. Kennedy is fighting against segregation and he's killed, um, it, it goes beyond coincidence. Uh, and, and, and he said much more. Um, but I've listened to that over and over and over again. I've listened to that clip and it it's important it's more important now than ever that we don't forget our history and that we don't go numb to streams of atrocities whether it's you know african-american black americans with with their history or whether it's good people who can't remember all the terrible things donald trump did even though we're not even into you know the first term you know we haven't even completed his first full term we just forget you know stuff gets old by old, I mean like months or weeks or outside the news cycle, and we forget, and we can't forget. And and he, without saying as much, he drove that point home for me so strongly. So, again, that was Theo Joseph. Um I believe he said that he owns a business in Johnston, Rhode Island. Um, their business helps out uh, other uh, black Americans. They take them in. They t- try to send them uh, through college, and when they're done with college, they hire them on so that they can, you know, hopefully move forward with entrepreneurial careers. Um so he's doing great work and and it was a it was a powerful moment in in the speech that he gave uh the the full speech is i think eleven or twelve minutes and, and the whole thing was good but but that but that really stuck out so um they had great speakers in newport um him being one of them and and again, I left that feeling i left that feeling hopeful i left it feeling inspired um and my my soul felt good because again, when there are thousands of people in one space rallying around the same cause. You you begin to feel like there is some hope at the end of whatever dark ass tunnel we're living in right now. Um, so, so so that was it was a great experience. So um, I think it's important to protest. I think it's important to get out there in the streets and and if if for no other reason like you don't like signs, don't bring a sign. You don't want to chant, don't chant. But but feel that crowd. Feel the energy and feel the commitment because you realize that that is how stuff gets done. You know, it, it's been dominating the news cycle. The elected officials see it. We've got, you know, some you know police units are kneeling in the streets with these protesters. In a matter of weeks, Congress has drafted legislation. Like, we all want Congress to work better. better. People get out in the street and boom, we've got legisl- legislation um, at least proposed. Um, and so I guess it makes sense for me to talk about that here a little bit. So, um, last week, the Justice and Policing Act of 2020 was announced, uh, by, uh, House Democrats, and hopefully it will pass the House, get to the Senate, and, and move through there. I'm not going to talk about the whole thing, uh, in, in any great detail, but I do want to touch on some points. So, this is a police reform bill, um, straight out of the gate. Ban chokeholds and, uh, carotid holds. Uh, sorry, carotid holds. So anything that's going to cause asphyxiation, basically, would be banned. They want to ban a no-knock warrant in drug cases. Um, That's in reference to the Breonna Taylor case where they had a no-knock warrant and broke into the house and shot Breonna Taylor. Um, They want to be able to make police liable for civil rights violations. Um, This is reduction of qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is basically that unless a cop does something like egregiously unconstitutional, they are essentially immune from civil lawsuits. So this bill tries to um, make it easier for them to be, cri- uh, not criminally, to be sued in a with a civil case um, should they, you know, inflict harm upon people, you know, that they shouldn't be. Um, the bill would withhold federal funds from forces who do not meet these reforms. It makes lynching, finally, a federal crime, um, there's a similar bill on the table in the Senate for lynching specifically. Uh, Rand Paul had opposed it. Hopefully, um, you know, if this bill passes, that that will get, get through because I think we can all agree that lynching is not okay. Um, it would establish a national police misconduct registry. So believe it or not, if I'm a cop and I do something terrible and I've got complaint after complaint after complaint against me and my police department in Rhode Island fires me, I can go apply for a job in New York. And New York has no way to know what my record is or what, what I've done because there is no national database for police misconduct. So what this database would do is essentially be a permanent record of, Hey, you know, how is this guy? Did he get fired? Did he do anything in the line of duty he shouldn't have done? Should we be, should we be looking at this guy? Um, so, you know, better than a reference, essentially. Um, would establish the task force on law enforcement oversight under the Department of Justice. The Attorney General will make appointments to that task force. Um, law enforcement agencies will report breakdown on numbers of incidents by race, ethnicity, age, and gender of both the officers and members of the public involved in the federal government, uh, involved to the federal government. So police departments are going to have to more proactively report everything that they're doing to the federal government, um, for oversight. Um, prohibition of racial profiling, which I should go without saying. Um, you must give warning before use of deadly force. Um, it is not a defense for the police officer to use less lethal or deadly force if an officer's gross negligence leading up to and at the time of the use of force contributed to the necess- necessity of the use of such force. Um, in layman terms, if the cop instigates a person to the point where that person then lashes out and then the cop shoots them—that that is not an excuse for using lethal force. It is not okay to instigate somebody into essentially aggravating assault and then you shooting them. Um, so I was glad to see that. Um, Stop militarizing law enforcement act. This is part of the bill. In fiscal year 2017, $504 million was spent on equipment transferred from the Department of Defense to law enforcement in one year. Over the course of this program, where the DOD can give equipment it doesn't need to law enforcement, more than $6.8 trillion has been transferred in equipment. $6.8 trillion, trillion. The bailouts for COVID-19 thus far combined do not total more than that number. $6.8 trillion in military equipment that has gone to law enforcement. Think about that. Um, Some some protections coming in. Oh, and by the way, Donald Trump removed a previous executive order under the Obama administration that was intended to prevent fraudulent transfer of this equipment. So now this equipment can move even more freely and without supervision than it did under Obama. However, this bill wants surplus equipment to be returned to the DOD if it can't be used. The local community must be aware of the request for that equipment. So departments can't request it without, you know, city council knowing. Um and then all equipment must be certified annually. Essentially an inventory of that equipment. And failure to do so will result in loss of transfer to those areas. So we don't have an inventory on this equipment right now. Oh, yep, here you go. Have uh, you know, these you know flashbangs and you know two tanks or whatever and you do what you want with it, we're not gonna check in on it. So th- these are long due. Um f- finally, uh mandatory body cameras. Um visual and audio must be active on all calls. It may not be deactivated until the call has fully concluded. Um, officers must make civilians aware of the use of the camera, but the civilian also has the right to tell the cop to turn the camera off as long as that request by the civilian is on the recording. Okay, So for privacy reasons, if a search is being conducted, something like that, then the civilian can ask that the camera be turned off. Records must be maintained for six months. Um, and then up to three years if there's any use of force or complaints been registered, anything like that. Um, mandatory vehicle cameras as well, Um, they must be active during all stops, must be activated by the use of lights on the vehicle. So you turn the lights on the vehicle on and that camera needs to pop on. If there's an event where you're not supposed to be using the lights because you're in stealth mode and you need to be quiet about law enforcement approaching, the officer must turn on the camera when they would have turned on the lights in a normal case. So those are just some of the highlights of the bill moving forward. I think it's a good starting point. Uh, I'll be posting a link to my summary article of it um, here with the podcast um but again you get out you protest and within a couple of weeks congress has actually done something useful and drafted up legislation whether or not it will pass whether or not the senate will will go ahead and pass that uh, who knows um but hey they wrote a bill and that's something uh especially in this day and age so good to see so um covered the protests uh covered the bill earlier this week George Floyd was laid to rest in Houston Texas on, uh, on June 10th, his brother, Philonise Floyd, um, obviously attended uh, that funeral. The day after, Philonise Floyd was asked to testify before the House Judiciary Committee. Um, and I, I can't imagine what it must be like to have your brother's death replayed on national television time and time and time again, and then to receive a call from President Trump, and then to receive a visit from Joe Biden, and then to endure what for, for anyone under any normal circumstance would be an extremely painful experience in, in the, the the funeral uh, for, for someone you love. But then to have to get on a plane and go to Washington, D.C. to talk to legislators about what you what change you need to see and, and about the brother that you lost um, is is unfathomable to me. It, it's. And it's extremely brave, I think, um, but it's also a, quite a burden. I mean, you know the attention that this has gotten on the national scale. You know that your your brother somehow now represents this movement for racial equality, and you've been grieving, and then you you lay your brother to rest, and then you are on a plane to Washington D.C. to then defend your brother and to push for you know police reform, and so. Um, there were some moments from his testimony that were just really um, real. They were very real. Um, this first one especially. So, uh, so this is um, George Floyd's brother, Philonese Floyd, at the House Judiciary Committee, um, testifying. Um, this is a clip from early in his opening statement.
2: I can't tell you the kind of pain you feel when you watch something like that. When you watch your big brother, who you looked up to your whole entire life, die? Die begging for his mom? I'm tired. I'm tired of pain. Pain you feel when you watch something like that. When you watch your big brother, who you looked up to for your whole life, die? Die begging for his mom? I'm here to ask you to make it stop. Stop the pain. Stop us from being tired. George called for help, and he was ignored.
0: You you can hear the desperation in his voice and and, you know stop us from being tired, he says. You know, and and like I said, it's been a terrible couple of weeks for for this this gentleman in particular, and he is in front of Congress and he's talking about watching his brother die on television calling for his mother and someone you've looked up to your whole life. You know, these are real people that are being killed out there, and, and they have real families that are affected, and real communities that are, are affected. And this isn't just something that's happening on TV and, like, in, in an insular bubble. And that's why these po- people are out there protesting, because this is not the first time. George Floyd's brother is not the first brother to lose somebody. You know, he's he's out there representing all the people who have lost close family members and friends to unnecessary police violence and and he talks about what the value of a life is
2: George wasn't hurting anyone that day he didn't deserve to die over $20 I'm asking you is that what a, is that what a black man is worth $20 this is
0: 2020 and and the $20 he's referring to is his, his brother George the whole reason the cops showed up was because someone at the story just come out of said that he thought he, you know, George Floyd may have used a counterfeit $20 bill. So George Floyd was ultimately killed over potentially using a counterfeit $20 bill. And that's not okay. Is, is it's a life worth $20 in 2020 Is an African American life is a black life worth $20 in 2020. No, resoundingly. No, it's worth way, way more. You can't put a monetary value on a life but to kill someone over the potential of using a counterfeit $20 bill is egregious it's egregious and it's wrong and it's it's disgusting and it's it's surprising to me that we haven't seen more upset you know th- these protests are are powerful but not everyone's out there you know everyone in America everyone in the world watched this murder on screen everybody knows that it was over you know potentially a counterfeit $20 bill and yet, only some people are out on the street. Only some people are vocal on social media and in other outlets. You know, we've got other people saying that it's not a big deal. We've got people saying that, well, you know, George Floyd was a criminal and George Floyd this and George Floyd that, and who cares? It doesn't matter what he did. You you don't you you don't kill somebody over twenty dollars. You know, so, so this wing of people in America or globally that seems to be like, oh well, you know. He, you know, was a former drug user or, you know, whatever. Like, it, it doesn't matter. The, the, they called the cops because they thought he used a counterfeit $20 bill and he died. And he died. And that's, it's not okay. It is not okay to kneel on someone's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds because that person may have used a counterfeit $20 bill. You know, 20 bucks does not go a terribly long way these days. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, no amount of money is worth killing anybody over. But, you know, you know it's, it, it's a fair question. And I'm glad that Felonese Floyd asked that um, in his testimony, because that is what the black community is up against. That is how they feel. You know, when, when you see time and time again, black people systemically killed by law enforcement in this country, it certainly makes or gives the impression that, you know, a black life is not worth as much. Hence, black lives matter. Because this is not happening to white people. This is not happening to Christians. This is not happening to any other minority at the scale that it happens to black Americans. And that is why black lives matter. Because right now, black people especially are living in this world where a black life might be worth less than $20 in the eye of our law enforcement agents that are there to protect and serve. That is why they're out on the street protesting. That is why people are standing with them, because they know that's not okay. And there should be more outrage, and there should be more people in the street. And the number of people who keep trying to deflect away from all these important points, it's its a little bit sickening. And you wonder, like, what type of home were they raised in? Because everyone saw the video. Everyone knows it's egregious. Everyone knows it's wrong. And everyone knows that black people are killed by cops way more often than white people. And that equates to systemic racism. And some people are refusing to put that two and two together. Um, hopefully things will change, uh, in, in the coming weeks. And, um, you know, hopefully through, through progress and not through tragedy and, and, you know, things like, like we've seen in Atlanta now, um, which I won't get into yet, but pending more information will probably definitely be on next week's podcast. Um, So I want to get to systemic racism. Um, Systemic racism in this country has been here since the beginning, and I touched on this a little bit last week. Um, What's problematic is that people don't or refuse to acknowledge it, because everyone knows it. Everyone knows it. It's just whether or not they want to acknowledge it at this point. Um, There's been way too much in the news, there's way too much history, um, and As I'll get into here in a minute There's a lot of history that we also kind of don't know But it's readily available for any of us If we would just listen Um, But one of the most concerning things for me Is someone high up in the Trump administration um, Larry Kudlow uh, Was on CNN um, And he was talking to Anderson Cooper And he made the following statement uh, When asked uh, If systemic racism Is a problem in this country I do not I do not. Do you have any systemic racism against African Americans in the United States?
2: I will say it again. I do not. I think the harm comes when you have some very bad apples on the law enforcement side. What was done to Mr. Floyd was abysmal. Abysmal. But I believe everyone in this country agrees with that.
0: Yes, you believe everyone in this country agrees with that, but that does not address the issue of systemic racism. That does not address the issue of the systems that are in place that routinely oppress black Americans in this country. It does not address the number of black people who are routinely murdered by law enforcement in this country without cause and then receive those families receive no justice whatsoever because there are no convictions of the cops who are killing the black people needlessly without cause in most situations or in many situations. So what's troublesome is you see this in the general public fine okay there's either there's a level of ignorance there or there's something in themselves that they don't want to address or they don't want to admit that other people actually have more difficult lives than they do because you know whoa pity pity me and like my difficulty like how 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 you know dare you ask me to fathom that like someone else could have it tougher just because of the color of their skin but hey that's been a reality for hundreds of years but you know some people are slow getting to it. Um, but when there's someone high up in the Trump administration who is is who who is not, not willing to acknowledge systemic racism, when members of our government who, like the police, are supposed to be protecting and serving the, the people of the United States, all people of the United States, to include black people, when they're saying that there is no systemic racism, that's a problem. That's problematic, especially since he's an old white guy. Okay? So... That needs to stop And here's why it needs to stop Or one of the reasons um, if, if you've seen John Oliver um, from, from last week And I'm going to be posting a clip to that episode Please watch There's a clip at the end of a woman Who is who is kind of raging Rightfully so About the injustices done To the black community in America And I had seen that clip a day or two Before the episode came out uh, My fiance's mom had had shared it along and she said, you know, Rosewood and Tulsa. And I'm thinking, what is she talking about? Rosewood and Tulsa. So I looked it up and I want to talk about this for a minute because I didn't learn this in school. I didn't hear about this in school. I don't know why I didn't hear about this in school. Not only did I not hear about it in regular school, I didn't hear about it in college. Um, there, especially, you know, so, so, so we all know about the pr- police brutality And and, and we, we know about racism and we know about the KKK and we know that, you know, black people were enslaved in this country, but what you don't hear about, or at least what I didn't learn about, what was not made very plain plainly clear to me growing up in school, being educated was that time between the emancipation proclamation and the president. So Rosewood and Tulsa, Oklahoma. So Rosewood, Florida, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, and the move massacre. Um, I want to touch on these. So first, uh, we'll go in chronological order. Rosewood, Florida. Um, in January 1923, there was a massacre of Black Americans in Rosewood, Florida. A white woman named Fanny Taylor, Fanny Fanny Taylor from a neighboring town, um, claimed to have been beaten by a black man who came into her house um, in the early morning hours. Um, her husband would routinely leave before sunup. Um, but for whatever reason, he was not considered a suspect. Uh, though many speculate that he probably hit her, uh, not a black man. Um, the sheriff in the area had heard that a black man had escaped the chain gang, and he put a posse together to go look for that gentleman. A crowd of white men increased um, in size, and some took the law into their own hands. Um, so they just, you know, they're looking for this guy from the chain gang because the assumption was that maybe that guy had, you know, hit her. So. But the crowd gets too large and some of these white people start trying to take the law into their own hands, um, including just grabbing a guy, a black man, and dragging him behind a car. Now, there's a woman by the name of Sarah Carrier, and she was the black laundress uh, for Miss Taylor, uh, but she lived in Rosewood. And her son, um, Sylvester, uh, had made some comments in the New York Times um, that basically angered some of the whites in the area because he was essentially saying that, you know, black people were capable of more, um, and that this event, you know, may, may, may kind of, kind of be, be an indicator of that. Okay. So Sarah Carrier had said that she saw or, or thought that, you know, Miss Taylor may have had a white lover and he's the one who came into the house and, and hit her. Um, but, but, you know, never saw a black man in the house after Sylvester made those comments in the New York times. Um, In a few days after the initial report, a group of white men attacked the Carrier house in Rosewood. Um, There was a shootout overnight, and Sylvester Carrier and Sarah Carrier were also killed, along with several white men. That shootout caused white men from all over Florida to come to Rosewood, and eventually they burned the town. So let's recap. White woman complains that a black man maybe uh, that, you know, hit her... In the dark, but her husband wasn't home, and the laundress, Miss Miss Carrier, never saw a black man come into the home, but they know that a black man escaped a chain gang, so they make an assumption that maybe it was that guy, a posse comes together, and this white posse starts dragging black people behind cars and causing issues to the point where someone says something that they don't like and they go to the house and have a shootout with someone who's not even related to the initial incident of the woman saying that a black man attacked her and a town gets burned. Anywhere from 30 to 150 people may have died in that Rosewood massacre. Um, Newspapers called it a race, race riot. That's 1923. Tulsa, Oklahoma um, this is Black Wall Street. Uh, this was 1921. Uh, I said it was going chronological order, but I, I swapped these two. So, Tulsa, Oklahoma, um, Black Wall Street was a prosperous Black community in Tulsa. Um, wealth, culture, and education were all prevalent there. Um, and, uh, you know, it sounds like a, a wealthy Black man had moved there, purchased a bunch of land, and had the sole intention of selling it only to Black people to kind of create this, you know, prosperous community. Of black people um, in, in Tulsa. So there was an event. 19-year-old black black guy, uh, Dick Roland, um, was using an elevator. Uh, and there was an elevator operator, a white girl named Sarah Page. And they, they think they probably knew each other. He rode the elevator all the time because the only restroom that he could use um you know due to segregation was up on the top floor of this uh this building and so he would have had to have used the elevator pretty routinely to go use the only restroom that he would have been allowed to use in the area so he gets on the elevator and the speculation is that maybe he tripped and grabbed her arm when he fell or or something along those lines something incidental um either way she screams and he goes running because he thinks he might be in trouble He was arrested um, the next day, uh, and by that evening, um, the the day of his arrest, a word of lynching went through the went through the community. Um, And when that word got out, a bunch of white people uh, ended up forming up in front of the in front of the courthouse, fearing a lynching. You know, because a a year earlier, a a white man named Roy Belton was publicly lynched. because lynching had happened there to a white man, some members of the black community armed themselves, 50 to 60 of them, and went to the courthouse. um, And and they said that they were told by the, the sheriff, to, that, that you know, they needed to be there to assist in protecting Roland. The, the sheriff denied those claims. Um, seeing the armed black men, more than 1,000. Now, now let me recap numbers here real quick. 50 to 60 black men armed themselves and went to the courthouse. Over 1,000 white men began arming themselves as well at the armory because they had a militia there. So they went to the armory, over 1,000 of them, and moved toward the courthouse. After 10 p.m., A white man outside the courthouse was, uh, you know, allegedly told a black man to surrender his pistol, and the black man refused. And then a shot was fired. And they don't know if it was a warning shot or or what what, what happened, but either way, a shot was fired, and almost immediately it triggered rioting. Over the course of the next couple of days, 35 square blocks of Tulsa, Oklahoma, were destroyed. Not only were there attacks on the ground, but there were also attacks by planes. 10,000 people were made homeless in this, this attack. Estimates were of 100 to 300 dead and at least 800 injured. Those are war numbers. War numbers. So one of the more prosperous black communities in America burned to the ground. And again, the numbers are staggering. Fifty to sixty armed men asked by the sheriff to go assist in making sure that this young gentleman, Dick Rowland, was not lynched. A thousand white people respond. A shot gets fired. And, you know, it's a spark on kindling. It goes off. That's Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was both early 1900s. And again, I never learned about those in high school. But we're talking about the massacre of hundreds of people, hundreds of black Americans in this country. That is our history. But you know what else is our history is the MOVE Massacre. This was 1985. This was two years before I was born. Not only did I not learn about this in school, my parents didn't talk about it, my grandparents didn't talk about it, my friends' parents didn't talk about it, my friends didn't talk about it. I had never heard of the MOVE Massacre. Philadelphia. 1985 move with a libertarian group in Philly um black libertarian group and over a decade they're running with the police um they you know m- mainly involved complaints with political messaging or noise or conditions you know with the area that they lived they were a communal organization um they all changed their last name to Africa I believe I think they were led by a gentleman named John Africa um they'd been asked to move from multiple locations I guess you know they you know had some you know filth issues and you know whatever it may be Um, In 1985, after similar complaints, um, police obtained arrest warrants for some MOVE members, and the mayor classified the group as a terrorist organization. So they went after these MOVE members, and they couldn't get for these members to come out of the house. So the cops evacuated the neighborhood. On Monday, May 13th, 1985, 500 police officers, 500 police officers, 500, attempted to clear the building that the MOVE organization was in, 11 people, by the way, 500 police officers, one building, 11 people, 500. Unbelievable. Okay. So MOVE refused to come out of the house. There was a standoff. Tear gas was thrown into the building. The officers fired over 10,000 rounds of ammunition into the house, 10,000 rounds into the house, just trying to hit them. Um, reports I read said that the MOVE members were hiding in the basement as the bullets riddled the building. A helicopter came over the building and a C4 explosive device was detonated on the roof, causing a fire. In that fire, 11 people died, six adults, five children, children aging between seven and 13 years old. The resulting fire was allowed to burn and destroyed blocks of the neighborhood. They literally said, don't put the fire out. They said it was because they didn't feel like they could get firefighters in there safely enough, but they let the whole neighborhood burn. Um, The move commission, which was done after the fact to investigate, um, they issued their report on March 6, 1986. The report denounced the actions of the city government, stating that dropping a bomb on an occupied row house was unconscionable. American dropped a bomb on an African-American community in Philadelphia in 1985. It's it's basically in my lifetime that this happened. Can you imagine today a, a U.S. helicopter, a law enforcement helicopter, flying over a building and dropping a bomb onto the roof, detonating it and causing a fire? Can you imagine watching that live on TV? Like, that shit wouldn't stand. Like, what the fuck? 500 police officers. It's unbelievable. I mean, so this is th- these are three of many reported events, and many events, especially in the late 1800s, early 1900s, similar massacres were not even reported because they were black communities. They they weren't reported. This is our history. Um, this this is a gentleman coming up here. His name is Jim Taylor Jr. He was a resident of that neighborhood in Philadelphia in 1985, and uh, here here's his his perspective. On on what happened?
3: They came knocking on everybody's door. Told us to pack belongings for 24 hours and to get out. And after that, they barricaded the block, sealed the block off. The next day, I woke up. I heard gunfire. And me and my best friends came around. We was on 61st and Osage. We watched the helicopter hover. And next thing you know, boom next thing you know it started burning. When it started burning, they didn't try to put it out, it just kept burning. And before the fire could stop, the last four houses on this side of the street is where the fire stopped. All the rest of the houses was gone. It didn't really hit me to the day when we walked through and I watched my dad and all these, I call them tough guys, I watched all these tough guys that I grew up watching break down and cry. That's when it hit me. You know, they, they work hard for all this and to get burned out. If it would have been another color living on this block, they would have went about another way. But what killed me is, you don't hear this in the history. You had 11 people get murdered. 61 homes burned down. You don't hear about this. You know, you're taking a back seat to history.
0: And how do we not hear about this? How do we not hear about bombing on a black community in 1985? How do we not hear about it? It needs to be in every history book. It needs to be taught over and over and over again. That cannot stand. So in America, we whitewash the history. Get rid of that ugly stuff. You know, like right here, right now. You know, we are not getting the full truth in school. You are, you are not taught that in school. Go look it up. This is not conspiracy. This is not something that didn't happen. This isn't something that the left is conjuring up to prove a case. These are real events that happened in America, in our history, to the black community. Where in 1985, you can drop a bomb on an African neighborhood, African-American neighborhood, let the fire burn, destroy 61 homes, and never hear about it in school. That's 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 our America. That is the America that we live in today. Um, speaking of the America we live in today, Donald Trump was it's um, going to get back out on the campaign, campaign trail, um, and he essentially changed the date. But Trump's first rally was going to be in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, Oklahoma, on Juneteenth, and Juneteenth is a holiday celebrated. Um, you know, by the black community. Um, it is the day, June 19th, 1865, two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, that was the day that it was announced in Texas that slaves were free. Um, it was, it was the time, it was the first time that there was anyone to enforce the uh, Emancipation Proclamation in Texas. Um, and so it became the holiday, June 19th, Juneteenth. Trump was going to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma, that we just talked about, Wall Street, sorry, Black Wall Street, and on Juneteenth to give his first rally speech. He has since changed the date. So either it's someone on his team, um, me and my fiance were joking about this, that that absolutely like just wants to steer him in the wrong direction Or he's got someone on his team who's extremely racist and just wants to, you know, shove it to the black people. Because to go to Tulsa, Oklahoma on Juneteenth with all this going on is like the worst planning you could ever do. Ever. It's the most insensitive thing you could ever do. And when you heard it, when you were like, oh, oh, that's what's happening, you weren't surprised. That's absolutely something Donald Trump would do. I'm frankly surprised he changed the date. So to wrap up the show, uh, last couple of minutes here, I want to talk about the Confederate flag. I want to talk about um, you know some of the uh, things that have been going on over, over the last uh, week here, some of the positive changes. So um, before we get to the American flag, the NFL came out and they said that they made a mistake. Kneeling for the national anthem in protest, absolutely okay. Uh, they were wrong. They're changing their stance on it. The NBA has come out and made a similar statement um, that they are going to be lifting the ban. It was never right for them to ban protests during the national anthem um, during the NBA games. NASCAR. NASCAR, which I'm a huge fan of. I've, I've always followed NASCAR. You know, I, I grew up with that. You know, Dale Earnhardt was my childhood hero growing up. Um, but it's been, always been a heavily... Uh, a sport heavily influenced by Southern culture, NASCAR banned the Confederate flag from its events and properties. And, you know, for, for, for a sport so ingrained in Southern culture, that's a huge move. And it really sends a message that changes alive and well in this country. The U.S. Marines, um, the Marine Corps, also banned the Confederate flag, as did The Navy. And as a former military member, a member of the Navy, I can tell you that there were Confederate flags everywhere. Members of the military love flying the Confederate flag. You know, I I don't know if it's because there's a lot of people from the South in the the military or or, or what, but you saw a lot of them. So for the U.S. Navy and the Marines to also ban the flying of the Confederate flag is huge. Um, We've seen Confederate monuments being toppled across the nation. We've seen Christopher Columbus monuments being toppled across the nation. And those are all signs you know there are americans out there who are sick of worshipping oppressive people oppressive symbols christopher columbus came here he was not the first person to come here uh, by any means um from europe he essentially be- began the you know uh Killing off of, you know, the Native Americans that were, were here in here and in, in in South America, Central America. And and so, you know, we've we, we've we got these symbols of oppression that are being toppled as as a movement. And, and I think it's a really good thing to see. And for everyone who says, well, that's our history. We don't need monuments to remember history. We don't need to erect the statue of Hitler to remember the Holocaust. We don't need to, you know build replicas of, you know, Columbus's ship to remember that he sailed here. It's in a book, you know, you can go read the book, Um, you know, the same books that, you know, Black Wall Street and Rosewood and the 1985 bombing of Philadelphia, those books, the same books that those events should be in, have Christopher Columbus and, and all that stuff in there and the Civil War. So you can go read a book. You don't need to see it. You don't need to shove it in the face of the people who have been oppressed by those symbols. You know, for all the Native Americans who were wiped out, who lost their cultures here, um, Christopher Columbus is an invader. You know, and and so we need to check our perspective on those things. But I did some research on the Confederate flag because I I wanted to know, you know, I'm I'm not from the South. I'm from the North. I'm from, you know, the Union, the United States. And and that's the culture I was brought up in. I understand that people were brought up in a Southern culture, and that that culture was not always maybe pro-union. I'm I'm not quite sure what that experience would look like. Um, maybe if someone wants to talk about their Southern experience and why you know you know how much the Civil War weighs in weighs on their life, you know maybe that's something that we we can talk about on the show. But um, the Confederate States of America was not America. The Confederate States of America. Was a different country, um, as as different from America as Canada or Mexico. Um, the Confederate States of America were were states that seceded from the United States to form the Confederacy with their own president. Okay, Jefferson Davis. You know, so, so it's not like they were a subsection of America. There was a civil war, and a group of states seceded and became their own nation. Okay, now now the Union. The United States never recognized the Confederate States of America as an official nation. Why would they? They're fighting a war against them trying to, you know, maintain the Union. But the fact of the matter is, for everyone who says, you know, oh, well, you know, we should, we should keep these Confederate monuments because they're part of our history. No, they're not. They're part of the Confederate States of America's history. That country lasted about four years. Then they were gone. They're not part of the United States history. They're an adversary that we fought. And beat. The Confederacy was formed after Abraham Lincoln was elected president uh, and before he took office. So after he was elected, before he took office, that's when the Confederacy was set up. The principal reason for the secession was that slavery was being threatened, and much of the Southern economy was dependent on agriculture, and the loss of slaves would be a massive detriment to the economy of the South without those workers to be there to, you know, help along the agriculture. And again... This is a completely separate country. However, fun fact, the modern day notion of the Confederacy, um, as we think about the Confederacy today, when you see the Confederate flag of today, um, that largely began in the mid-1900s. And there was a congressman named Strom Thurmond, and he was a Dixiecrat. And the Dixiecrats were opposed to the civil rights movement. The modern Confederate flag was never the flag of the Confederacy. As you look up the Confederate States of America, you will not see the Confederate flag that everyone has on bumper stickers and flying off the back of their trucks. That is not the flag of the Confederacy. Confederacy. The initial flag did not have that symbol in it at all. There were three iterations of the Confederate flag. The second two iterations had that little that the Confederate symbol that we know today had it up in the top left corner as a part of the flag. But the Confederate flag that we see was actually the flag of the Army of Northern Virginia. And that was the army led by Robert E. Lee. But that was not the flag of the Confederacy. So the Confederate flag that people use was not even the flag of the Confederacy. So the flag that we see today, again, came, became popular in the mid-1900s through Strom Thurmond and the Dixiecrats. And they, that movement was opposed to civil rights. So let me boil this down real quick and real easy. The modern Confederate flag is literally a symbol that was posted up against the civil rights movement. That flag as a racist symbol cannot be made any more clear than that. That a political group that opposed—and I'm not talking like conspiracy, you know, whatever. I'm not talking Antifa. I'm talking about a group of U.S. senators as a political ideology calling themselves the Dixiecrats. That flag became popular at that time. As a threat against the civil rights movement The flag that you see on the back of people's trucks And on the bumper stickers stickers, And that used to fly high above NASCAR events That flag is literally a symbol Against the civil rights movement That's what it is And that is why people want it torn down Because racism is not okay We're not looking to get back to segregation. We're not looking to get back to slavery. We're looking for equality and throwing that flag in the face of our fellow brothers, African-American, black American, brothers and sisters in this country who deserve every right and every comfort and the same equality that we all enjoy. Do not need that flag shoved in their face whenever they're out in public. It is not free speech. It is hate speech. And hate speech is a crime. So next time you see the Confederate flag, understand that that thing has only been around for 70 years and that when it came around, it was because it was a symbol held up against the civil rights movement. That is what that flag means. And it wasn't even the flag of the Confederacy, which I can't get over. I can't get over that. It's like the Confederate flag was not even the flag of the Confederacy. It was a flag of one of the armies of the Confederacy. And I think that's hilarious, but that's just me. So anyway, we've covered a lot. Uh, we've gone through, through a lot. Um, again, I'm going to be posting articles, some Wikipedia pages. Um, I'm going to be posting my summary of the, um, police reform act. Um, also there's a movie about the militarization of police, a documentary called do not resist. I'll be posting the link to that film's website. That was really, um, intriguing. Um, it goes over how, you know, how the military, um, Equipment comes into the hands of law enforcement and you know what some of their tactics are again that John Oliver episode will also be posted um, There's an article that I read um, One of my friends posted called confessions of a former bastard cop. That was a really great read um, and then finally there's a 30 minute or so piece that Dave Chappelle did and um, It's raw and it's emotional and it is not comedy. Okay, um, but It's worth watching. So I'm going to be posting all those links along with this podcast um, for your, you know, viewing pleasure and review. And I I always like, you know, uh, to be able to give you guys what I see and what I'm going off of and kind of the things that form my perspective um, just so it's out there. So um, that is this week's episode of The New Deal. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'll have a new episode out for you uh, in the coming week. And again, um, we're available on Spotify. Podbean mobile app, as well as Apple podcast. So check us out there. Please, uh, please like share follow, uh, you know, share the podcast, uh, hit me up on social media, get involved in the conversations. Um, and I'm really glad you guys are listening and have a absolutely fantastic week.